2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm in Class with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we're going to be, going to be talking about innovating your business model. So Ron, I have a, fr- a couple of friends who have MBAs. God help them, I know. Right. And, <laughs>
3: <laughs> the union card for yuppies.
2: Exactly. And, and one of my favorite questions to just play with them, you know, and it is kind of play with them, is to, to ask them, so what, what exactly is a business model? And then I kind of like sit back. And I just let them go for, you know, usually somewhere between 8 and 12 hours. Absolutely. You'll get war and peace, I'm sure, (laughs) in return. Wow. Because there's really, at least once I think you have your MBA, no succinct way to define a business model, right?
3: Right, right. In fact, Ed, I just asked that question uh, the other day, in a room of very, very smart people, and boy, the the variety of answers you get when you ask people what a business model is 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 quite amazing.
2: Oh, it's all over the map too. From everything from from pricing to who your customers are, right? I mean, there's just to, to almost sometimes even defining it specifically by product,
3: right? Right, or process. They start yeah. talking about process and. And all that. So so what's your favorite definition of a business model?
2: Well, you and I, I think, have come to the same conclusion on that. And it is a, a fairly concise one that I think you picked up. I don't know if we – and then we've kind of both wordsmithed it a bit. But it is simply this. How does your organization create value for customers and capture that value – percentages of that value from the customer? Right.
3: Uh, uh, describes the ratio. Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you, how your organization creates value and how you capture that value mm-hmm. or portion of said value? Um, yeah, I think that's about as simple as it can get,
2: <laughs> and it works. It works. It does. And we usually leap into then talking about that business model and the shift that people are changing in the business model is, you know, in, for professional firms is getting away from the billable hour. But we're not going to to focus today, although we'll probably give some examples on the idea of a professional service business model. We really want to look at this from 35,000 feet and just look at business models in general, in general right, yep. and, and yep. the idea of, of, of what – what are disruptive forces in business models? And there, there's a, a quote that you and I both use when we talk from Andy Grove that disruptive threats come not from not necessarily from new technologies, but from new business models. And here's a guy who's the CEO of Intel, the you know one of the largest technology firms and most successful technology firms ever created, and he's saying that that, that innovation doesn't come from the technology, but in that the actual business model of how it's used and of course Intel was famous for changing the business model around the chip right right
3: the memory chip right remember when back in what was it the 80s where Japan could actually price the chip cheaper than the American manufacturers could manufacture them yep wasn't that what was going on and he just came into Intel one day and he said we're no longer a memory chip company cuz we just we've we've been outdone <laughs> mm-hmm. and he went to a processing company, so he took the company from one billion or whatever it was back to zero and and Je- Ed, just to add some empirical evidence to what Grove said there because I think when people think of disruptive threats or business model threats, they do think of technology. and I know we're going to talk about a few different books today, but one book that I really like on business model innovation is a, is uh, Mark Johnson's book called Seizing the White Space. He has partners with Clayton Christensen, who, of course, has done a lot of work on on business model innovation, but in this book, Johnson talks about of the 350 business model innovations that he and his team had studied in the past 10 years, and his book was from 2010, he said more than 30% were enabled by internet technology. But you know that that's a good two thirds that weren't had nothing to do with technology. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about technology; it's a different way of looking at the world.
2: Well, and for. internet technology was just a tool. That's like saying that the that that the innovation around the the the, the steel industry was in part due to the technology of rail transport. Right. right? You yes. know, it, it it used rail transport. doesn't mean that steel innovation was was based on on the, 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 or, or ha- the business model for how you sold steel had to be based on how the railroad provided the steel.
3: Right. Another term, by the way, that Grove like, uh, uses that I really like because it kind of is a, it goes right along with the, th- the disruptive threat of a business model is the inflection point. And he defines that as a time in the life of a business in which its fundamentals are about to change Mm-hmm. And I think the key word is the fundamentals. You know the way we've always done it. You know, there's a great line from uh, the the former uh, engineer design guy at uh, GM. Uh, this goes way back. A guy named Charles Kettering. He's pretty famous. He said, "You know, if that's the way you've always done it, it's probably wrong." Mm-hmm. So when the fundamentals are about to change, then, yeah, you – I mean, I I know we could go through a million examples here, but just let's take one that we have chatted about and even one of our callers asked us about. I think Don did. um, Uber. Right. Uh, Look at just the fundamentals of of how – you know, it's not that big of an innovation to be able to call for a car, but look what they've done to it to enhance the experience and just make it a – you know this psychological innovation
2: well right and and you know the fact and we have said this before that that uber is not a car service uber is a software company and that the innovation was that the software connection that allows you to see the driver's license plate and a picture of the guy or gal and and then of course for them to to see and locate you on on their system as opposed to well i, I wonder when the cab's going to be here right constantly looking out the window right so that you know that that that's really And Of course, my favorite thing about that, and I think this is partially, or well, no, this is definitely the part of the ex- the experience is that I never have to take my credit card out.
3: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You
2: no. Know? Okay. I, I, I
3: I keep thinking about this iPay that you know Apple's Apple's got, and how how that's going to revolutionize and possibly disintermediate uh, credit card companies, and you know what what kind of impact is that business model threat going to have?
2: Yeah, I mean fortunately Apple's done the done the smart thing and and uh, connected the two together at this point. They're not quite trying to push the credit card companies out yet. <laughs>
3: right. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> Cuz of course, you know, an example I love to talk about when it comes to the the threats of business models is just Napster. I mean, you know, this 17-year-old kid, Sean Fanning, sitting in his dorm room listening to his roommate complain he can't download music effectively and and they come up with Napster and what's the the entrenched industry you know what do they do they sink money down the judicial rat hole and start suing a bunch of kids and you know they say well, we have a crime wave and yeah, i don't know you got millions of people downloading billions of your product for free you don't have a crime wave you've got a business model problem
2: <laughs> and they and they have still still not recovered from that they still haven't completely figured it out they've gotten better but they have, and it, but it
3: took Steve Jobs to really get in there and then reengineer their business model. And, and I think that's a really interesting point about our definition, Ed is um, you know about this idea of creating value. That's obviously in the customer experience and, and all of that. Right. But then there's also capturing value. And I think it's a really important point to make that anytime you see a business model change, you know you're going to see some type of a pricing change as well you know like iTunes rather than buying a CD you, you know you can buy the song you want for a buck at a time and and that's a change in the pricing strategy as well not just um how the it's created value but also in how it's captured
2: well and to that end you know one of the the, the books that we're going to talk spend a little bit of time with today is the the book business model generation by Alexander Osterwald and Yves Pigneur, and uh, it, it, their their definition of a business model is very similar to ours ron it's it says it a, a business model describes the rationale of how an organization creates delivers and captures value now we, we quibble a little bit with the idea of, of capturing the value, but I guess that's really because we, we, we prefer to talk about that as price right, as a separate right. thing in and of itself. And we think right. that's one of the, the problems in business today is, the, is separating out the three components, cost, price, and value, and how they get overworn. But, um, but I, I do like their idea of adding perhaps deliver in here because maybe that is something that our, ours misses a bit. Uh, although you could argue that it's encompassed in the idea of capturing.
3: Right. I actually, Ed, think it's in the idea of creating. I'm, that's
2: what I meant to say. Yes, it, you're right. Yeah, yes, yeah. you're right.
3: Yeah. Um, like but, but either way, I think this is now we know why the MBAs can give us 14 hours on this because the more you know, the more you realize what's going <laughs> on with this. But I, I think just to shave with Occam's razor here, creating and how your organization creates and captures value is, is, is probably a sufficient definition.
2: Uh, that's where that's where we're going with, anyway. I'm sure there are people who argue with this. If you argue with this, let us know. We're happy to we're happy to have a a conversation about it. Absolutely. So what we're going to do, I think, Ron, is, is take through some segments of this book, the the business model generation book over the course of maybe the next segment or so of our show, uh, and then talk about that. But there's there's a couple of other things that I think that we want to get on the radar. So we're not going to spend the entire time delved into this book uh, nose first. But uh, let's let's talk a little bit, if we could, before the first break about the first one, which is probably the one that's most obvious to everybody, and that is customer segmentation. Right. Right, a business model that, that, that segments your customers, and they talk about how this is customer groups, are, if you know, their needs require and justify a distinct offer, so separate offers for each other, reach through different distribution channels, which they add as yet another thing, uh, require different types of relationships, have substantially different profitabilities, or are willing to pay uh, different, for different aspects of the offer.
3: Right. So this would go into the strategy, some of the things like we discussed with Tim Williams about how, how you know, you can't be all things to all people, right? So it's better exactly. to be everything to somebody. And I, I think this is where a lot of businesses have problems because of that market share myth, you know, that we have to grow and expand. And the more customers, the merrier. No, the right customers are what matters,
2: yeah, the example that I, I like to use and will probably use throughout our conversation today, Ron, is McDonald's versus Ruth Chris. Yep. Right? That's yeah, a yeah, good point.
3: Because sell beef. they'll sell
2: beef. Lots <laughs> well, of it. <laughs> barely. But yeah. <laughs> but I but I but I like the the, the model of, of McDonald's versus Ruth Chris because it's it's so obvious, right? That it, you even somebody who is a longtime Ruth Chris customer. Would be disappointed at going into a McDonald's expecting that quality, but vice versa, right? Someone who is expecting the the the, the quick turnaround service of a McDonald's would be de- de- completely disappointed in going into a Roos C- Chris and expend- expecting it.
3: Absolutely, and and Ed, when I think about customer segmentation, of course, we always kind of I always think about it in terms of pricing, but even even like a cosmetic company like. Um, um, L'Oreal and Lancome, I forget their holding company name, but uh, you know they're two distinct brands. One is sold in a drugstore, one is sold in high-end you know, department stores like Nordstrom, Macy's, and, and they're going after completely different customers. So all of those things you just mentioned, the relationship they have, the packaging, the marketing, they're completely different because these are completely different segments. But as Tim Williams would say, a brand can only stand for one thing. And they, they they are very good about different brands for different segments.
2: Yeah, no, they're, they're outstanding uh, with that. And after the break, we'll talk about some of the other aspects of the business model generation diagram, and which include key partners, resources, relationships. Some of it, There's a lot of overlap here, too. But first, we're going to take a short break. But before we do that, I want to let you know that you can get a hold of us today at hashtag AskTSOE, and we do monitor those tweets during the show. So please, if you've got a question or quibble with what we have to say, happy to hear from you during the show. Alternatively, to get notes about the show, visit Verisage.com TSOE. And, of course, you can email us anytime at TSOE at And Ron and I love to answer your questions, so please please do that as, as well. But right now we're going to take our first break and hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
2: Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results.
0: a lasting legacy? Is it making a difference in your life or maybe the lives of others? I lead the leadership connection with host Dr. Linda Sharkey will bring you the practical tips and tools to make you an extraordinary leader and by doing so build a better more successful and more profitable organization. Our show is all about you the leader that you can be and the culture that you can create. Tune in to I lead The Leadership Connection, live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here discussing
3: innovating your business model. And uh, again, we've defined business model as how your organization creates value for your customers and how you capture that value. And we're talking about a specific book called Business Model Generation, written by a couple guys, uh, the lead author is Alexander Osterwalder. And and they have a website, too, that we should give out. And, of course, we'll post this in our show notes. But their website is businessmodelgeneration.com slash hub.
2: Yeah, and there's a couple of apps on it, by the way, too, on and on, uh, definitely the, the iPad platform, but I'm, sh- I'm sure there it's Android as well. Right. In
3: fact, um, I, I first, I think um, I learned about the apps from uh, our, our friend Rick Payne, and he was telling me how uh, a few of his customers, he's got accounting firm customers, w- would literally just sit in a Starbucks with the app on their you know tablet, and and walk a customer through innovating their business model. So if you're very if you're interested in, in getting down into the details of the nine building blocks that that Ed's describing here from the book um that app could be a useful tool as just kind of a you know to help you go through this process but ed you kind of talked about customer segments as being the first building block and then the second one is the value proposition
2: yeah and here's another one that literally trees have been killed forests of trees have been killed over right writing books about value proposition uh and you know i'm gonna gonna talk a little bit about this, but then take a quick punt because we have an upcoming guest that we're lining up hopefully for March or April, a guy by the name of of, uh, Flint McLaughlin, who is from a company called Mech Labs who has done extensive work on this whole value proposition. In fact, Ron and I both have had the the privilege of getting advanced copies of his his book and um so ron we'll 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 talk a lot about that when we have flint on for sure yes um, he has he, he has a lot to say
3: and he's got a pretty unique perspective on it than the historical literature
2: no absolutely i agree but but let's let's uh stay here at in when in osterwald's book uh walder's book and uh What he means by it is, what value do we deliver to the customers? Which one of the customer problems are we solving? Which customer needs are we satisfying? And what bundles of products and services are we offering to each customer segment? So this is kind of the the further refinement of the first conversation. All right, well, what customers and customer segments do we serve? And then to those different customer segments, what is it that we're going to offer? Now, this is where I begin to part ways with the, the group here on... Uh, on business model generation book and that is because they very much focus on this idea of bundles of products and services and in my notes of the book Ron, I have you know every time they write that phrase products and services I have an asterisk which is my indication that I should say and knowledge And knowledge yep <laughs> because I think they really miss the whole idea of, of knowledge transfer and knowledge workers and that most of what we think of as service really isn't service
3: right right you know, in the um, traditional literature, Ed, this value proposition, uh, and this goes back to a guy named Michael Lanning, I think his name is, and he was a and g guy, and he wrote a lot about this in the 70s and 80s, but his idea of a value proposition was your service, your quality, and your price. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of that joke, pick two, you know? Um, <laughs> it, I mean, but that that wasn't the point, but the fact of the matter is, you know, are you going to compete on service, are you going to compete on quality, or are you going to p- compete on price? And when I, when I, I kind of use that framework in my work, and, but I added just what you said. I added intellectual capital, even going a little bit beyond just knowledge, because when you start looking at companies like Google, you realize just how much leverage, uh, the, the knowledge they have to add information. And, and I would even say some of it is knowledge that they bring to the table is, is definitely a big part of their value proposition.
2: You're right, but Google's not a real company. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Talk about disruptive threats.
3: You know, uh, uh, I, I forget where I got this, but it's a quote from our, uh, our buddy Steve Ballmer, who was the former CEO of Microsoft. And I just love this. He said, and I'm not sure when he said it. He said, "Google is not a real company. It's a house of cards."
2: <laughs> Is that about Whoa. the dumbest thing you've ever heard? Almost. Whoops. <laughs> the second it might it, it might be well it, it, it's it's up there because the first dumbest and I, look I've actually met Steve Ballmer and I like him and he is a genius I mean he's really super smart but there's just some yeah. things that he just completely misses you know one is him screaming market share about everything. Which, if you have ever seen him on stage, if he doesn't scream "market share," you're sorely disappointed. I think he now does it as an encore, right? He just kind of, you know, after his speech, he comes out back on and then yells "market share," (laughs) you know, just to just to keep the crowd going. But but the first dumbest thing that I think he said was was someone asked him about uh, the Apple and the iPhone and the App Store and and the and the and the you know the the innovation that is and was the Apple the App Store, and he said, "Oh, sixty thousand Apple or six hundred thousand applications that all access the internet. So what? We only need one of the one app for that. It's called Internet Explorer." <laughs>
3: <laughs> Might that explain why Microsoft was a bit slow with the internet and the new new. Smartphone yeah. technology and yeah, all that. Yeah. It's
2: possible. It's very possible. Okay, <laughs> but but honestly, but, but back to this whole idea of value proposition. You know, there's an exercise that I have taken from this book, Ron, which I think is helpful for businesses. They list out in this book. Let's see, it's uh, six or seven different ways that that you could uh, create a value proposition or major uh, characteristics, I guess, of a value prop. Getting the job done, design. Brand slash status, price, and by price by the way, they mean low price here.
3: Yes, yes. Uh, Why cost, is it at all Yeah, everybody who writes about business model always goes about the low price.
2: Low price, I know, yeah. I know. Um drives me crazy. Cost reduction, risk reduction, accessibility, and convenience. And that's so that's eight. And then so here's the exercise that I have done and it's been been pretty fun, is like I, I list those eight things out. And I'll say, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10 for each of those, rank their importance, 1 to 10, and their uh, – yeah, their, their, yeah, importance or non-importance on a scale of 1 to 10. And then what you think that is to your customer base. And I, what I found is that that really gets maybe one or two of them on the table for a particular organization to drive forward, to be thinking about, okay, in the market space that we first serve now – what are the ones that are most important?
3: Right, right. You know, that whole idea of the job that, that the customer is trying to do, you know, that old marketing axiom that nobody buys a drill bit, right? They, mm-hmm. they buy a hole. Well, well, what do you care about that? Well, if you're Black & Decker, you know, not drill bits aren't the only thing that makes holes. Right. So do lasers. And so maybe we have opportunities now to go into lasers. But I've always thought that just looking at the job, and I'm, I'm glad they, these guys don't. They obviously go beyond that. But there's more to a purchase, I think, a lot of times than just getting a job done. A lot of it is status. A lot of it is psychological. You know, I go back to the Apple brand mm-hmm. you know, or just a designer brand that, that makes us feel good for wearing it. That's not really serving a job other than maybe stroking our ego. Um, but there's more to it than just getting a utilitarian job done.
2: Oh, absolutely! In fact, the, the if you've ever read the book, "The Perfect Thing" by Steve Le, uh, Levy, um, who, who wrote this book about the iPod, and it's called mm. "The Perfect Thing," and, and mm-hmm. he you know he talks about all of the stuff, including by the way why the the, the headphones were were, were white. white, yeah, you know, yeah. and and how the 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 brilliance behind that is <laughs> also interesting. That the, the book, you know, Steve, this was the this was the the gimmick for the book is that other than the first and last chapters. The, the chapters in the middle were all shuffled right. <laughs> in different copies of the book.
3: <laughs> oh, wild. That's excellent.
2: But, but the, the third of these, uh, the, these uh, breakdown building blocks for the business model generation is called Channels. And this is one that's near and dear to my heart since I work for a company that sells through a – channel uh, of what we call partners. So it's, it, th- these are the things uh, that the, the questions of through what channels will your customer segments be reached, right? So which ones work best, which ones are cost efficient, and uh, how are we integrating them with custom routines? And it's that last question that occupies a lot of my mind share is how does it that, that an organization not only sells to and sells through, A channel, but how do you fully integrate that with the with the customer experience, right? Mm -hmm. So how Mm -hmm. how 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 does Sage ensure that the customer experience is somewhat similar across the board, despite the fact that people are buying from different partners of ours?
3: Right, and that I guess just like the twenty eighty rule dominates, you know, practically every business with customer, you know, you get eighty percent of your revenue from twenty percent of your customers. uh, That's probably got a lot of uh, impact too on the channel, mm-hmm. right? So then the question becomes, you know, how, how many channel partners do we need? Need I'm not talking about Sage. I'm just talking about, you know, is there a lot of waste and capacity uh, used up by by excess channel partners?
2: Exactly, and and do you, and, and this is because it's 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 clearly a second tier. In fact, that's what it's called, right? So then you have to decide: is who who do you create these? Uh, programs around, right? Do you create them around the customer or do you create them around the, the, the partners? And it's, it's this constant yin and yang back and forth about it.
3: Right. I remember reading about Cisco and how they literally cut their channels. Uh, they lopped off like two thirds of them. I forget the exact number, but it was quite a few. And they just went after the ones that, that did the most value that added the most value, not even necessarily biggest in revenue, but had the biggest impact. And, um, it supposedly had a dramatic impact on their on their business
2: yeah it 's interesting though because i think you you do end up sometimes with a with a whale scenario right you know you 're you're, no matter what you lop off you 're always going to have an eighty twenty rule
3: right you 're going to go back to the eighty twenty yeah yeah the, the minority <laughs> dominating the majority absolutely. <laughs> Uh, and then the fifth block. Uh, before we take a break, real quick, let's get this in there: the customer relationships. What do they say about that?
2: Yeah, that's the fourth one. And it, you know, this is this is what how how is the customer relationship going to work? Is it things like you know personal assistance versus self service, uh, automated versus you know communities co creation? So you're seeing a lot of work done around this area right now, um, in, especially in my industry again, you know, software where that p- people want to be able to do a lot of this stuff 24/7 and you can't necessarily have people on the phones all all of the time they want to be able to solve their problem they it's not that they that uh they uh, that they they just don't want to talk to human beings necessarily to solve their problem right. right they want to be able to do it online and are you creating the the necessary communities for people to be able to do that right right Oh, that's
3: excellent. Okay, well, when we come back, we'll finish off their uh, nine building blocks from this book, Business Model Generation. In the meantime, folks, you can uh, follow the show at Verisage.com slash TSOE. We will post show notes. We will link to all of the books that we are going to mention today. And you can certainly contact Ed or myself at TSOE at And remember, we do follow the show live hashtag, hash, on Twitter, hashtag Ask. T S O E. But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba.
2: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if
1: you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul if you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, Where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G. and Jenny Frumer? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G. and Jenny Frumer airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to the soul of enterprise.
2: The fifth building block of the business model generation diagram is called revenue streams. And and really they they, they do net this out that there's only two. Really, and that is transaction, <laughs> transactional revenue streams, you know one-time payments from customers, and then recurring. Well, that right. makes sense. right right. <laughs> right. And then after that, everything is then a subset, right? It's so uh, f- for what value are our customers really willing to pay? Uh, for what do they currently pay? How would they prefer to pay? And how much does each revenue stream contribute to the overall, overall revenue? So examples here is, you know, sales of assets, usage fees, subscription fees, uh, licensing, uh, renting, leasing, uh, brokerage fees, and advertising. And, you know, this is where they do bring up pricing. And kudos to them for, I think, doing a, a pretty con- good job at, at concisely talking about fixed menu pricing and dynamic pricing. And I will say one thing that really struck me about this book. Ron and I really cheer them on in nowhere does it says cost plus pricing in the book. It doesn't say right, it. Right. So, right. Two, no, so like che- three thing. cheers for them. Uh, absolutely.
3: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Cause that that's pricing is a big part of that capturing of the value. So all of those different things that you just mentioned could be, you know, I could even see a business using uh, quite a few of them all at the same time. Um, so that, that's a good thing.
2: Yep. well absolutely and well, and rather rather than go down the rabbit hole of pricings, which we could, and when we would never finish this show and get through all nine, let's move on to the sixth one right away, which is key resources right and this is the one that I think that that you and I where we really start to break because they do talk here about intellectual capital right uh and but but I don't think they do it in in such a way that either one of us be satisfied with. Much, right yeah. we're not fully yeah. satisfied and it's probably because we this is an area we know too much about unfortunately right, right. or maybe we know not at all it's really the issue we don't know enough <laughs> <laughs> but but they talk about struct uh physical which we equate to structural capital right, right. Uh, intellectual capital which we, we see as the knowledge component the human capital which they are talking more about the human beings inside the organization but i also equate that out to this, the the overall social capital social. Sure. right so what what pe- what people does do people in the organization know right so it takes it out one that's whole community idea and then of course financial capital being the one that everybody is is most familiar with do you have any th- thoughts on that ron
3: no, other than I just think, our, you know, the way I think about it is and the way we tend to present it is, you know, the three components of intellectual capital is the the human capital, the 80%, you know, that creates wealth or 80% of the wealth of the world resides in human capital. And then you've got your relationship capital or social capital, which is your customers and your alumni and all that. And you've got the structural capital, which is the uh, what's left in the building after everybody goes home. And I just think that's a kind of a more uh, holistic way of looking at it rather than the breakdown they give in the book. Anyway, that's how I think about it. But maybe I'm too uh, knowledge worker, knowledge organization focused.
2: Well, I I, I think it's just a a different way of viewing it. I mean, they they did cover it all to their that. They did. Their eighth block is. Yeah,
3: their eighth block is key partnerships, which would be part of our social capital relationship capital uh, format. So
2: exactly. Exactly. But the, the seventh block is key activities, and you know what I what. I, another thing that I really liked about this book is this would be the the book that the the, the, the chapter that all other business books are written about because it's all how. This is all it's the how all the how stuff. This is yep. all the how stuff, and <laughs> again, to their credit, they dedicate two very short pages to it, and they're like, just don't worry about this. This is this is the stuff that comes, you know, later, and this is, this is obviously production. Right. In a manufacturing right. environment, how, how, how are you going to produce said product? Uh, but for knowledge workers, they do talk about the uh, problem solving. How, how is it that your organization goes about thinking about and solving problems uh, right. and the questions that they ask? And then finally, uh, the third is is their their platform slash network. Right. Uh, you know, and this is this is the one that that. I think all organizations are trying to move away from the idea of just plain production and expand things out to the platform network, right? It's every, right. Every, everybody's trying to take their product and make it a platform, make right. it a network that people have to then rely on and come back to. And you know that gets, gets into the, the whole idea of stickiness, right? How, how, sure. how can we make you, make you sticky to want to come back to, to a particular website, let's say?
3: Sure, sure. And Apple's really good with that, aren't they? I mean, you know, most people that buy one of their products get sucked into their system, the App Store, iTunes, whatever, and then they're kind of, they stay there.
2: (laughs) Guilty. That was me, Ron. I, I bought one, one, one iPod so many years ago. Really, that next,
3: was your foray. Yeah, was that, was the ga-
2: that was the was gateway really, drug. It was a gateway drug. <laughs> right on. Was that was your gateway first drug. drug. It, was, it <laughs> was the iPod, and then all of a sudden it was the iPhone, and then all of a sudden it was you know two iPads because they always come in pairs. If you if you uh, are a couple, you can you can never just buy one iPad. <laughs> right, right. If you if you have a spouse or significant other, so they 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 come in pairs, and then you know. Now, now I'm practically well. I am. I'm all. I'm all Apple now.
3: And bet uh, just back real quick to the key activity one. I know yeah. this is kind of the how-to, and they you know say don't worry about this so much. But uh, I, would the after-action review fit in here? Because I mean, that's how you're going to learn how to build the car better, run the factory better, do everything better. Is the after-action review?
2: Oh, without question, Ron. I mean, as we said in that show, it it is it is you know the, the best knowledge management tool ever devised by mankind. Right. Right you know so yeah that 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 would clearly i think fit in fit into this portion as well the but but the eighth block is is key partnerships and you know this is again more that social capital out, so outside the four walls of the organization uh, who are our key partners and suppliers they do they they do look at this from a more of a stakeholder perspective right. uh, which key resources are requiring for, uh, are we acquiring from partners and which key activities do our partners perform so this is uh, this is a pretty interesting conversation for a lot of people because this I think is really the the, the section that talks most about from uh, a risk aversion standpoint. You know, how is it that you can you can transfer the potential risk of use down to uh, throughout your products, your your stream? You know, right,
3: right and and i think and i also think of you know innovative things like what is it in, in, innovative center or whatever that relies you, you uh, internal r&d departments can go out to these sites and they can enlist people from around the world to work on particular problems that they can't seem to solve. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there was an engineer, I think it's Sun Microsystems or something, Bill James, who said, or I forget his name, but he said something like the smartest people aren't inside your organization and tapping into those partnerships or other types of you know social capital outside of your four walls can can be a great uh, a great source of wealth creation. I I remember AG Lafley, when he came into uh, Procter and Gamble, he kind of changed it from R&D meaning internally to connect and develop because mm-hmm. they started to look outside at other resources and and they ended up getting like one half of their new product ideas from outside of PNG R&D labs.
2: That's absolutely brilliant because I think one of the transformations that I've seen in the software space, where where I've played my most of my career, is the, the the not invented here syndrome of the 80s and early 90s really has has given way to this coordinate and and collaborate model right. a lot more. Right. Uh, yeah. So. And then
3: the, their ninth structure is the cost structure. What do they say about that?
2: Well, you know, this is the one. This is the one that we're, we uh, the accountants really love, love, right? This is uh, the, the, this is what are the most important costs inherent in our business model, and which key resources are our most expensive, and which key activities are our most expensive. So, this is the the way of of counting uh, and costing the, the the stuff for for key resources and key activities. Well, you know, kudos I do, to them for putting it last. Absolutely, <laughs> right? Absolutely. You know, that that I think that was one one of the. The, the the huge insights in this book, and I think why it it actually I I think turned off a lot of uh, accounting types is because they put it dead last in the book.
3: Right. So this is a really good framework, and whether you just use the book or you know you get their app or whatever, uh, it does. I think it it brings up the right questions, and and it's certainly uh, a good group exercise. I've seen groups uh, work on this because they had the the format in the book that you can use, and and it does work well, doesn't it, Ed?
2: Yeah, it really does. And I I've, I've been involved in actually as recently as last month in an exercise where this and yeah, you know, sometimes what what it takes though is distilling it down to maybe just two or three that a group is going to work on because really to do a a, a full workshop on this is probably at least a two-day experience.
3: Sure, sure, cuz it's really an act of imagination too and creativity. I mean, it's 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 um you can, you can bring a lot to this that, that will really help the business model become uh, you know, completely different than what it is. And in fact, that's one of the things they say. They say it's a daunting task. H- how do you implement and manage new models while maintaining existing ones? And, and yeah. that is the challenge. I mean, this is why we see big businesses. They just can't adapt. And so they go away.
2: Yep, and in a lot of cases they don't because there there is a time when you have to leave the shore, right? You've got to you've got to move on away from your old business model onto the next. Remember when we talked to Reed Holden, he he talked about the 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 business model of moving to subscription based software. He says you know you got it, it, it's hard it's hard to manage both, and the and the best way to do it is to switch to subscription during a recession when right. <laughs> when when revenues are going to suck anyway. <laughs>
3: Right, right. No, I know it's you know. There's a joke in the uh, in the professional world. You know how many accountants, lawyers. I mean, you just fill in the profession. Does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. You know, one to change it, nine to talk about how great the old one was. No. And <laughs> And we really do become ossified, and and uh, you know, uh, to to our existing models, and it it really is, it can be an enormous threat. I mean, I'm reminded of. Uh, xerox park labs they basically invented the user interface and the mouse and all of that and they had no idea how to fit it into xerox's business model of what well, we charge by the page so how do you put a meter on a computer
2: yep there's another they, whoops
3: yeah and so when steve when they gave a tour to steve jobs good thing uh he looked at this and said wow this is amazing but he wasn't tied to their business model Mm-hmm. So he could go start something new, and I think that's a really you know that that's the this is what I love about uh capitalism is this type of uh constant innovation and invention and dynamism
2: absolutely well, the book is business Model generation by uh Alexander. Osterwalder and Ron and I both recommend taking a look at it. Some really good stuff in there. There's lots of good stories in it. And we we just really took you through the first part of the book, which is the the, the nine sections of it. Um, uh, But we do do recommend that you take a look at the book. We are going to take a break here. But after that, we're going to talk some more about this business model. And Ron's got some thoughts uh, from other books that he has talked about, including some thoughts, of course, from the great Peter Drucker. In the meantime, if you want to follow us along, just it's Verisage.com slash TSOE for show notes, as well as previews of upcoming shows. Hashtag AskTSOE on Twitter, and we will check Twitter during the break to see if any of you have any questions or thoughts for us. But in the meantime, we're going to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights believe in your numbers see what sage can do for your business visit believeinyournumbers.com today
2: in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time.
1: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're talking about innovating your business model. And, Ed, what do you think of this? Experts, I think, rarely innovate. At least that seems to be the history of of, uh, innovation. And G.K. Chesterton, a great author, he said the argument of the expert that the man who is trained should be the man who is trusted would be absolutely unanswerable if it were really true that the man who studied a thing and practiced it every day went on seeing more and more of its significance. But he does not. He goes on seeing less and less. And there's so many examples throughout history of this. And one of my favorite is the Gottlieb-Daimler uh, company which was basically Mercedes Benz predecessor predicted back in the 1800s that there'd only be uh, at, m- at most one million automobiles sold, and their logic was well because you couldn't train that many chauffeurs. <laughs> <laughs> and there, the, one of my favorite lines is, "We don't like their sound. Groups of guitars are on the way out." And this is a Decca Records executive turning down the Beatles in 1962. Not the first time, for a second time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's the one about Fred Astaire? Uh, when it is it, it went in for a screen test, yeah. uh, can't sing, can act, can dance a little. Yeah, bal- balding can dance a little. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. But you know, this this is the
3: point about creation or innovation should always take us by surprise. That uh, you know, Talib makes in the Black Swan. Um, you know, we do not know what we will know. Invention and creativity is always a surprise. Mm-hmm. And and that's the beauty of this. And and it, it doesn't just come from experts. You know, sometimes it can come from just, you know, the kid in the garage or the kid in the dorm room like Sean Fanning. And so one of the things, when I started studying this really, really heavily, this whole idea of business model, you know, given all the work, Ed, that we've done on, Efficiency versus effectiveness, and that kind of goes back to our first show. Even Uh, I came up with another one of these, you know, uh, two by two boxes, right? This matrix. And on the bottom, I put efficiency from low to high. And on the left hand side, you have effectiveness, right? So our distinction between efficiency, that's just a ratio, while effectiveness is doing the right thing. And if you think about these four boxes, let's start at the worst position. Low efficiency and low effectiveness. This this is what I called Luddites. So, the, I mean, you're destined for a bad future if you're in this category. And, and uh, luckily, not many companies are, although maybe you could make a, an argument about Kodak with the, um, you know, what they called at the time in 1975 when they developed it, uh, filmless photography. Yeah. I, I love that line. They didn't even have a, a good word or a good term for digital. yeah. The, guy, the engineer, his name was Steve, Steve Sasson, invented it in 1975. But they, you know, they were just so set up with their legacy systems that if it didn't involve film, they didn't know what to do with it. Yep. And yep. so you have Luddites. But then, if you have high efficiency, which sounds like it would be good, but low effectiveness, then I equated that to buggy whips, right? Mm-hmm. Buggy whips were incredibly efficient before the combustion engine took them out. In fact, that they were they were at the apogee of their efficiency. And then when you have low effectiveness, or I'm sorry, high effectiveness and low efficiency, so now we're in the top uh, uh, upper left hand quadrant of the matrix. Mm-hmm. I call that innovators. And if you're in the far right hand, the, the upper right, where you have high effectiveness and high efficiency, you would think that would be the sweet spot, but mm-hmm. it's not. I think it's Humpty Dumpty. You're ready for a fall back down to buggy whip status. And I've got an arrow between those two boxes going back and forth, meaning, look, we need to invest some current resources and be less efficient so we can be more effective in the future. And that's what innovators do. So the sweet spot's actually the top left hand side of this four square model.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think that people and people's visceral reaction to that, Ron, is is are you advocating then for less less efficiency? And I think what you're saying is yes, but only in the sense that if you if you're even that efficient, you could be more effective if you freed up some and were inefficient <laughs> and allowed allowed some inefficiency to creep in.
3: Right, and this goes back to a point, Ed. I've heard you make. We talk about it that you know if, if, the more you focus on efficiency you're looking inward you're looking inward you're not looking outward to the customer right so you're so you're you're ignoring kind of the customer experience and and the customer's needs and desires or even how you know like Walt Disney would say how do you plus the experience in the park you're not thinking about those things and i just i'm reminded of you know the Steve Jobs tour of the IBM factory incredibly efficient but they were making dot matrix printers And he was about to take them out because they weren't in touch with the market. And this is what Peter Drucker points out. And he he didn't use the term business model, I don't think, but he called it a theory of the business. Mm
2: -hmm. And
3: he wrote about this, at, at least in one famous article in Harvard Business Review in 1994. And he said, you know, a lot of the problems with big companies is the external world has changed and their theory of their business hasn't kept pace. It's no longer relevant to the external world.
2: Yeah, and it, it is it is a little scary because you do see that as the more businesses focus inside the organization on efficiency, the less the less effective they are for customers. And I think that's remember Jules Goddard's great quote, which I've just sucked onto and love, is that you know strategy is the art of keeping one step ahead of having to be efficient.
3: Uh, absolutely. And so like with Google's 20% time, well that's completely inefficient. You know, most of those things aren't going to pay off. That's it's it's like taking one day a week and, you know, goofing off except, you know, 1% of them might pay off. Well, that's inefficient, but it's incredibly effective and that's what keeps Google in this innovators side and when you look at something like the driverless car and, and this is another great example, isn't it? The driverless car wasn't invented by an automobile company. It was invented by Google and, no, and I no. guess some universities.
2: No, and now, and, and now rumor has it, Ron, that, you know, Apple is on it. That's the rumor. I, I, I know, I know. Hey, I, you're I, on record, just so, you, just so your audience knows, Ron is on record as saying is that if Apple ever made a car, he'd buy it. So he's, you're, you're, you're already customer number one.
3: I know. Not only buy it, buy it sight unseen, like I'd pre-order it if it was an Amazon book or something. So I'm I'm I know I'm I'm really committed. But that that would probably be pretty cool. I just wonder what it would price be priced at.
2: Well, you know, you know, you start saving up, my friend. Yeah, I know. I know. Start saving up. Well, you know, I, I do think that that the the article from Drucker again brilliant when what? 1980 you said or 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 in 1994, the 1994, I think. Either. 1994, okay. Yeah. So yeah. but but prescient as usual and and of course 20 30 years ahead ahead of his time and I, I even like the phrase the 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 theory of the business it's right so it's the theory of your business what what is what is it you're postulating right it, exactly
3: it is a theory because different theories can rise up and take them out in fact he he has uh, he has some points in this article, and one of them is the theory of the business has to be tested constantly. Mm-hmm. It is a hypothesis. And so, built into the theory of business must be the ability to change itself.
2: Well, of course. And, but, but here's the thing. But you talk to business a lot of business leaders, and like, don't give me that theoretical crap, right? right. <laughs> don't give me that theory.
3: <laughs> right. Well, here's a theory for you that uh, Napster could destroy your business.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: they- <laughs> <laughs> or Craigslist. You know this this little outfit in a Victorian home somewhere in San Francisco at what? What is it? At twenty one employees or something? Mm-hmm. Look what they've done to newspapers. Yeah, they've they've taken away their classified ad revenue and
2: which is their and, last and, source, their last source <laughs> of of actual revenue.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely amazing. In fact, I I read a really interesting statistic uh, preparing for the show that in two thousand eight. Was when we crossed the line of more people were getting their news online than than people who had paid, you know, newspaper subscribers.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, makes so sense.
3: So that that sounds like a theory to me that was tested and proved to be true. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ta da! <laughs>
3: so Ed, what's on? Uh, well, folks, and, and we will post show notes on all this, so we will make sure we get all these books up and, and link to some of this other stuff that we discussed today. But, Ed, what's on, uh, what's on the schedule for next week?
2: You know, it's uh, the end of the month, Ron. It's uh, Free Rider <laughs> Friday. Oh, awesome. Because, man,
3: I'll tell you, my stack of stuff is growing and growing, <laughs> so I have lots of interesting things to talk to you about, my friend.
2: All right. I can, well, we're not going to get through them all. I can hardly wait. That's great, though.
3: Awesome. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours.
2: This has been the soul of enterprise business and the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage supporting small and medium sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE.